When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, and he began to teach them, saying, Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. Pray, Father, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds this morning for what you would hold for us through this, your holy word. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we begin a new sermon series today. We finished Romans a few weeks ago, and as I mentioned, uh, thank you to Bill for preaching last week. Uh, about the man that missed the boat, and um, so I hope you were able to, to see that and enjoy it. Um, so we are delving into the Sermon on the Mount. It is uh, chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew's Gospel, and um, you could probably, if you want to turn there to chapter 5 of Matthew, you can put your finger there. Uh, we will be looking at at least one more verse uh, this morning, uh, but it would give you um, that, that space there on the verses that I just uh, read, and because I'm going to talk about those in just a minute. And so um, you could read through this sermon probably in about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, uh, if you're a slow reader, uh, but three chapters. So did Jesus just go on the mountain and he just sat and talked for about 10 minutes and it was done? The likelihood is no. Um, most scholars believe we have a summary of uh, this sermon that he gave, that he probably expounded on uh, this text as he gathered, as those gathered around him uh, this particular day. We know that he has been tempted. He's at the start of his ministry. He has called his disciples he is now uh, have people that, is that are gathering around him. And one of those reasons is this. While he was in Galilee, as he was beginning his ministry, uh, he was healing the sick. He was bringing about cures for diseases. And people were coming to him in droves, wanting to be healed and, and wanting their diseases uh, cured. And this particular day, as, as he is on the mountainside and as people are gathering around him and he has his disciples with him, the, the text, Matthew tells us that Jesus saw the crowds and he went up on the mountain and after he sat down. Isn't that interesting? You know, I guess y'all would listen to me if I sat down, and I know there's more preachers than there's some preachers that have a stool and they sat down to preach from. Did you know that this was the mode of teaching, the acceptable place of authority at this time, that the rabbis would sit down and they would teach, and it was there that they would say, oh, they're one with authority because they're sitting and teaching. If you've been a part of academia, you know that there are chairs in departments in academia. And it's named that because those who have the chair have the authority or seem to have the authority to teach. And so Jesus sets and he teaches. And we know that this is important because you go to the end of this sermon, and it's going to be months before we get there. You know that I'm going to go through this pretty methodically, a verse at the time. And so in 7, chapter 7, the 28th and 29th verse, 
when Jesus had finished these words, in other words, this sermon, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching with one having authority. They were listening to what he said. Now, if you read the last phrase of that verse, it says, and not as their scribes, not as those that had been teaching them, that he has this authority. The, the main theme, the major theme of the Sermon on the Mount is the character of those that are a part of in the kingdom of God. In other words, you go to verse 20 of this fifth chapter of Matthew, and it reads this way. For I tell you, unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the experts... So you remember that last verse said he doesn't teach with authority like the scribes. He teaches having authority. Unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the experts in the law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was teaching something that was radically different from what they had heard, different from what they had been taught before from what the leadership was teaching them. And so this group, these four groups within the leadership were teaching. This is what they were used to hearing. The Pharisees, they believed that the right religion consisted of divine laws and tradition. They believed that those traditions and those things that were handed down uh, these rituals by other rabbis from past time. This is what you hold to. This is what you focus on. The Sadducees, they focused on the present, where the Pharisees were the past. They focused on the present, and they were the, the liberals. They, they were uh, discounting supernatural things. They did not believe in the resurrection. They modified what traditions and scripture would fit their philosophy. And this is what they taught. And then there were the Essenes. And they were ecstatics. They lived um, believing that the best thing is just separate yourself from society. Be uh, in a group that re removes yourself. And they lived in remote areas like Qumran, uh, northwest edge of the Dead Sea, and they separated themselves from much of society. And then there was a fourth group called the Zealots, and they were fanatical nationalists. Uh, they believed that the religious center would be one that was a political activist. Um, these Jewish revolutionaries believed that uh, if you didn't join them and take up arms against Rome, that you weren't living the right life. John MacArthur states it this way. He said, the Pharisees say, go back. The Sadducees say, go ahead. The Essenes say, go away. And the Zealots say, go against. But if we were to take that and put it in these modern terms today, this is really what we see not only today, then, we see it then, but we also see this today. The Pharisees were traditionalists, and the Sadducees were modernists. 
And the Essenes were separatists and the Zealots were activists. And we see this in the church today. We see many of these movements in the church. And if you're not part of one of these groups, then you don't have it right or you aren't living the way God intended for you to live. But Jesus was not a part of that. Jesus had no part of that. Jesus taught in a different way. If he was speaking to the Pharisees, he would have looked at them and said, and he did. This is about the internal, not the external. If he was talking to the Sadducees, he would have said, look, this is about God's way, not man's way. If it was the Essenes, this is about the soul, not about the body. And if he was speaking to the zealots, he would have said, this is about worship, not about revolution. And so the message that Jesus is preaching and teaching on the mountain that day is about the kingdom, is about the kingdom and those who are going to be part of the kingdom, those who are going to join with inheritance in the kingdom and how to live out that kingdom life today how are we going to to do that true religion in god's kingdom is not a matter of ritual philosophy or location or military might or any of those type attitudes but it's the right attitude towards god the right relationship that we have towards god and God's people. There's many churches today that um, do not want to hear this message. Uh, many pastors today preach a different gospel than what the gospel of Jesus Christ has in uh, the scriptures, and they don't preach surrender or humility or coming to the Lord in denying oneself. They preach more of do what you want. I heard a pastor as I was researching this text. Um, I read uh, a pastor's comments and he said, I would never preach on the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the most depressing texts that I've ever read. And I don't preach things that are de depressing. I preach about love because love brings people through the door. Now, you can do with what you want with that, but is it about God and the gospel and our relationship with him, or is it about the number of people coming through the door? It's an interesting take. So, this is a tough, tough text, a tough series, but it's important for us to hear. This first part of this Sermon on the Mount we call the Beatitudes, and it's verses 3 through 12, and we're going to look at verse 3 in a few minutes, but the Beatitudes, you, you've heard this word, you've heard uh, this comment of this particular section of the Sermon on the Mount. And so what does beatitude mean? It comes from the Latin, betus, which means blessed or bliss. And each one of these beatitudes 
began with the word blessed. And so this is a characteristic, a character trait of being part of the body of Christ. And each one of the Beatitudes come with a promise. There are eight of the Beatitudes. And each of them give us this trait of being part of the kingdom of God. Each of them challenged those at the time that they were hearing Jesus preach this sermon and preach the Beatitudes as he began this sermon. It was challenging to them. If you go to John 6, verse 66, that's an interesting number, by the way. But if you go to John 6, 66, you will see many of his disciples left him because what he was teaching was hard for them to hear. Now, if you back up in John, you see that Jesus said, if you're going to be a follower of mine, you're going to eat my body and drink my blood. And we today understand exactly what that means. They didn't understand. They wondered what he was saying. You've got to wonder after he finished this sermon if there were some that left the mountain that day and said, man, I can't do that. I can't live into that. Jesus, you're, you're asking me to deny myself. But he is calling us in many ways, challenging us today in the same ways that he was challenging people of that day. There are many today that say a prayer, even say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. But there is no evidence. There is no change in their life. There is nothing in their life that has changed. And my guess is probably there's not a change of address of their eternal destiny unless they have truly come to Jesus Christ. At the end of the sermon, in chapter 7 of Matthew, Jesus addresses this, and it's so sad. There are those that come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we perform all of these wonders in your name? And the Lord looks at them and says, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. These are people that confess Christ, they practice good works, but they were not saved because truly they had not surrendered their life. They were not born again. They had not ever experienced a change in their life from what they were prior in their carnal flesh. Therefore, Jesus says, Go in your life of iniquity. Go in your life of sin, because that is where you're at. You might say, well, why would we study this besides being scripture? What is important about the Sermon on the Mount? I believe there's many reasons. I'm just going to give you five this morning that I think are important. And, um, and then we're going to get to that first uh, 
beatitude that I want to uh, share this morning. And so uh, first, I think that one of the reasons that we study the Sermon on the Mount, its importance is it shows absolutely the necessity of new birth. It shows absolutely the necessity of new birth. It's standards that are too high for us to do ourselves. In other words, we, by human self, can't do that. It takes the power, the indwelling Holy Spirit to lead us. It is only those who partake of God, those who surrender themselves to God in new birth, that we could actually live into the demands, the challenges of this sermon. Secondly, the sermon intends to drive the listener to Jesus Christ as a man's only hope in meeting God's standards. It is a call to us to realize only in Jesus. There is no other way. There is no other person that is going to lead us in a way to the standards that God calls us to, except through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Third, the sermon gives us a pattern, God's pattern for happiness. And that happiness is in God. It is not in the material things of today, and I'll touch on that in just a few minutes. But this gives us an understanding, the sermon of God's pattern for happiness in him. Fourth, the sermon is perhaps the greatest scriptural resource for uh, witnessing and for reaching others for Christ. As we go through the sermon, and not so much the Beatitudes, but through the rest of the sermon, we will see that this is a call, this is an understanding of what Christ has done so that we can share the good news of the gospel with others. And then finally, the life obedient to these maxims that are proclaimed here is the only life that is pleasing to God. And so none of these attributes that we're going to talk about, none of this we're able to do in our own flesh. It is through the work of the Holy Spirit as being born again, having the indwelling spirit, that we can model these, that we can actually live into these characteristics, these attributes, these attitudes that we are to have as part of the kingdom of God. Jesus modeled it for us. Jesus modeled it for us. And we're to look to Jesus as we live out his call to holiness and righteousness in his name. Now, there are those that believe that Jesus just threw these things together, that they're just haphazardly put together, and that is not so. I believe as we study them, as we look at them, you can see that Jesus is teaching orderly. He is teaching, uh, and this first one that we're going to look at in just a moment, this first one deals with very important aspects that we have to live into before we can even live into the others that he calls us to. These eight Beatitudes, the first four deal with our relationship with God. 
The second four deal with our relationship with others. Isn't it interesting that there's, uh, I think there were 10 of them that were given the law, and the first four dealt with our relationship with God, and the last six dealt with our relationship with each other. You know, God has a plan, and God has a pattern, and, and man, God is so good in how he teaches and gives us this order. And here we see this progression as we look at these eight Beatitudes. In other words, poverty of spirit or poor in spirit leads to mourning. Mourning leads to meekness and so on as we look at them. The other thing that is interesting is how they connect with each other as uh, the Beatitudes. And that is the first and the fifth connect together. Poor in spirit and being merciful. The second and the sixth mourning and becoming pure in heart. The third and the seventh, the meek and becoming peacemakers. And then the fourth and the eighth, hungering for righteousness and being persecuted for righteousness. Those connect as we go through God and others, God and others. And they just connect together on how our relationship is with God and others. I think there's also, um, we call it the great commandment. Seems like love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and body. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is a connection there. So the first beatitude. I read the first two verses. The next verse is the first of these eight beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives the definition of this poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and I quote, there is, no other, there is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. It is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And all other characteristics are in a sense the result of this one. In other words, being poor in spirit. And he finishes this quote with saying, we cannot be filled until we are first emptied. We cannot be filled until we are first emptied. So blessed. Every one of the ones begin with blessed as this one does. What does it mean to be blessed? In the Greek, the Greek has three meanings for this word. The Greek word is meokros, and it means to be blessed, happy, fortunate, blissful. And so this first piece is happiness. Now, this is not necessarily the pleasurable or circumstances or the temporary things of this world. Being happy here means to be happy in God. It means to be happy in our relationship God with us and us with God. Too often we think that true happiness comes with our possessions, our circumstances, um, maybe relationships. Um, we see that and think that, oh, this will bring me happiness, the things of this world. But that is nothing more than temporary gratification or temporary happiness or temporary pleasure that comes Ultimately, if we live into that happiness, then 
God's curse through the pleasures of sin will come instead of God blessing us in the happiness of our relationship that is righteous and holy. You see, happiness cannot be attained without holiness. The second meaning of this word means to be approved. So happy, approved. Think of it this way. If a man has been dating um, a young lady and um, wants to ask her to marry him, often we will, as a gentleman, go to her father and say, may I have your daughter's hand in marriage? Would you approve of our marriage? We're seeking approval from the father. And so this blessedness is an, an approval from God. Uh, we seek his blessing. And as this, we live into this poor in spirit that in the kingdom of God, God is approving us, have appro has approval of us as we are living out his will and his purpose. And then the third meaning is favor. And this comes from God. This is a, a lavishing of God's grace and his mercy on us that as we come to uh, his favor, as we come to peace, as we come to uh, a relationship with him, the blessing that he gives us is favor in his righteousness, in his holiness. And this is done through being poor in spirit. This attitude of poor in spirit is important for us to understand. The, there's two different concepts here, and there's, I think, too many that interpret this poor in spirit in the wrong way. There's a word here called Pentecost, which means that you are, um, you're not a beggar, but you're poor. And so, for example, you remember the lady at the temple that had two coins? And Jesus says that she is giving, she's poor, but she is giving what she has. And so this is not a beggar. This is someone that doesn't have great means, and so they are poor. This is not what Jesus is talking about here. There's another word, another meaning, and this is picos, which is P-T-C-O-C-H-C-O-S. And this means that you are destitute. This means that you have been reduced to being a beggar, that you have no resources of your own. And this is what Jesus is preaching. This is what Jesus is talking about here. That we come face to face. We realize that we are nothing. That we have nothing. That we are ashamed of who we are in the flesh, in our fallen flesh. When we stand before a holy God, that we have nothing to offer him. Nothing. To be poor in the spirit is to recognize one's spiritual poverty apart from God. It is to see that we are lost and helpless and hopeless. That we are spiritually destitute. 
It doesn't matter how much education you have or how much wealth you have or your social status or your accomplishments or, get this, how much religious knowledge you have. This is the point of this first beatitude that Jesus starts with, being poor in spirit, being able to recognize our total spiritual destitution, that we are Need in need of being completely dependent on God. We know that there is no spiritual merit, nothing that we can do to earn this mercy and grace that he offers. Our spiritual pride is to be done away with. Our self-assurance is to be gone. We're to stand before God empty-handed. You see why... This is a hard thing to preach, a hard thing to hear, because we realize our poverty before a holy God. I mentioned Martin Lloyd-Jones earlier, and I want to read one other quote from him. In fact, it's probably, um, it's, it's a little bit longer than the other, but I want you to listen to what he says. This is probably one of the most profound statements when it comes to this beatitude that I have read and studied. I want you to hear what he says, but as you hear these words, and they're difficult to hear, I want you to think about your own relationship with Jesus Christ. Being poor in the spirit means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance, a complete absence of self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God, nothing that can produce nothing. It is nothing about ourselves. It is just a tremendous awareness of the utter nothingness that we are in the face of God. Being poor in the spirit, let me put it very strongly, as the basis of the teaching of the Bible, it means that if we are truly a Christian, we shall not rely upon our own natural birth. We shall not rely upon the fact that we belong to certain families. We shall not boast in that we belong to certain nationalities or nations. We shall not build upon our natural uh, temperament. We shall not believe in or rely on any other natural position in life or any powers that have been given to us. We shall not rely upon money or wealth that we have. The thing about which we boast will not be education we received, schools we have gone to. No, all of this is what Paul regards as dung, a hindrance to the greatest thing because it tends to be our master and control. We shall not rely on any gift of the natural personality or intelligence or general or special ability that we've been given. We shall not rely upon our own mortality or conduct or good behavior. We shall not bank on the slightest extent of our life that we have been living or trying to live. No, we shall regard all that, all of that as Paul regards it. 
this is poverty in spirit. This must be a complete deliverance from the absence of all of that. I say again, it is to feel as though we are nothing, that we have nothing, that we look upon God, this holy God, in utter submission to him, in utter dependence upon him and his grace and his mercy. End quote. If you read back through that, it gives you an understanding of what it means to be poor in spirit. So this beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what we are called to. This is a way that we are to live. This hum, humble or humility to God, setting aside pride or any self, set that aside. Jesus has this first, first beatitude about poor in spirit so that all the other graces, all the other elements of becoming a Christian fall into place. This is foundational for us to understand that it's not about me, it's about him in all ways and all things. Pride cannot be a part of the kingdom. And until we surrender pride, we can't come into the kingdom. We can't be filled until we're emptied. We can't be worthy until we recognize our unworthiness. We can't live until we admit that we are dead. Remember, I said this is hard to hear and to preach. We can't begin the Christian life without humility. We can't live the Christian life with pride. So until the soul is humbled, until the inner person is poor in spirit, Christ will never be dear to us. Think about that. Christ will never be dear to us. Until one knows how helpless and worthless and sinful that they are, we will never understand how mighty, how powerful, how glorious God is. Until we realize without Christ we're doomed. Until we realize what a powerful Redeemer He is, we stand on the outside. Until we see our own poverty, we will never see God's riches. I can see why there are those that may not preach this particular sermon. Being poor in the spirit, this first beatitude, precedes everything. It means that Christ is king. Christ is everything, that Christ becomes before all things. Church, can we say that? That Christ becomes before all things in our life? The promise is the kingdom of heaven. 
And to receive it, you must be poor in the spirit. Humility is something that takes the power of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. If we try to do that ourselves, we're going to fail. It is a condition that we are not going to get out of without the help of God. Being poor in spirit, almost by definition, says it doesn't start with us. It starts with God calling us. God initiates and we respond. So what is the steps to experiencing humility? Let me give you these three quickly and then I'm going to close. I believe being poor in the spirit, this humility that God has called us to, is to turn our eyes off of ourselves and to look to God. We have to have our eyes on God. If we've got our eyes on anything else, if we are looking towards or at anything else, if anything else is more important than our relationship with God, we've got our eyes on the wrong thing. We need to turn our eyes to Jesus. Secondly, we need to starve the flesh by removing the things on which it feeds. If we are feeding this flesh things of this world, we are not going to be living into poor in spirit. We're going to be living into self. What can I do to please me? What can I do to feed this self in this hunger desire of the carnal flesh? We must starve that flesh by removing the things in which it feeds. And we will find that this poor in spirit, this humble or humility that God has called us to will begin to be a part, a characteristic of who we are. And then finally, probably one of the most important things would be this, ask God for it. You remember what King David did, what he said in Psalm 51.10? should be familiar to most of you. Creating me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Ask God for it. If you are experiencing some type of carnal uh, issues in your flesh, ask God through the power of the Holy Spirit to remove that from you. Ask God for the humility, the poor in spirit that we need to live into so that we are living righteous and holy in his eyes. Thomas Watson said, if we are humble, listen to these attributes of one who is living in humility. We are weaned from ourself. We are lost in the wonder of God. We will not complain about our situation no matter how bad it becomes. Clearly seeing the strengths and virtues of others as well as our own weakness and sin. We will spend much time in prayer with God. We will take Christ on his terms, not ours. And that's a huge, we will take God, Christ on his term, not ours. And then finally, he says, if we're living into poor in spirit, this humility God has called us to, we will praise God and thank him for his grace and mercy. Because you see, without that, we are still lost. The bottom line is, is when we Look to God the Father and to the Son and through the power of the Holy Spirit. The way that we become poor.
poor in spirit and inherit the kingdom of heaven is only through Jesus Christ. And someone should say, Amen. It's a hard teaching. We have to examine ourselves. And I w- I'm going to encourage you as we go through this Sermon on the Mount, as we go through the Beatitudes and further on, you're going to find that there are pieces of this sermon that is going to challenge you. It's going to challenge where you're living and where you're at and how you are relating to others. Ask God to help you. He's already forgiven you if you're a believer. But he wants to help you in this task of being righteous and holy. He is a good God. And he loves us. And he's going to be with us. Thanks be to God his mercy and grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your holy word. Thank you for who you are and what you have done through Jesus. I thank you for the empowering Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit is real and tangible and lives in us and gives us power to face this word world and gives us the words that we need, Father, each step of the way. So, Father, we ask that we would be humble, setting aside pride. We would be poor in spirit, Father, realizing that our eyes need to be focused on you and only you and not about us. Thank you, Father, for who you are and for what you have done. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, I pray this in his name. Amen.